0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Last year's cybersecurity executive order was mostly focused on civilian federal agencies. But don't think the Biden administration will let defense and intelligence agencies off the hook. The president signed a new national security directive yesterday with some updated cyber requirements for classified systems. For more Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, the executive order from last May laid out a pretty vigorous round of items for agencies to do on the civilian side. This new one, does it prescribe essentially the same regime for DOD?
0: Yes, it, it essentially says, hey, all those requirements that apply to civilians, or the civilian agencies, this also applies to you, DOD, and the intelligence community. And, and as you said, the EO really focused on the authorities at departments like Homeland Security, at the White House Office of Management and Budget, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. This directive that President Biden signed yesterday kind of bridges those different standards and requirements over to the DOD and IC side. And it's not like the executive order totally ignored those agencies. It actually did tell them to uh, take requirements or use requirements that are equivalent to or exceed the cybersecurity requirements set out in the executive order. But as this directive shows, it it seems like the White House felt like they needed to give some specific direction to DOD and the intelligence community. So it tells them to do things like implement multi-factor authentication and encryption for classified systems within 180 days. It directs them to follow the secure software development practices, things like that, things that are in the executive order. It just tells them to do that as well and set some tight deadlines for doing those things. And what about zero trust? Because you can't swing a
1: dead cat without hearing someone from DOD talk about how they're (laughs) installing zero trust architectures and zero trust mechanisms. So does it back that up by requiring
0: it in the in the memo? It does. Just like the executive order uh, requires the implementation of zero trust, the, this memo also has many mentions of zero trust. Of course, multi-factor authentication, endpoint detection services, things like that are all components of a zero trust architecture and this requires DoD and and IC agencies to go out and do those things to get to a zero trust environment. And the other question is software bills of material. Is that also
1: specified in there? As it was, I think to a lot of people' surprise, in the last May memo, it's not a new concept, but it hadn't been really something in the government domain talked about that much.
0: Right. Well, well after after solar winds of course, you know, agencies started uh, needing to pay attention to to the security of their software quite a bit more than maybe they did before, and the executive order sets out a whole section on secure software development practices including software bills of materials. And this directive essentially tells DOD and and IC agencies, yeah, you're going to follow that same section, those different measures that are being implemented as part of the EO on on secure software development. You also have to follow those as well. So that's definitely something to watch.
1: Because I think the log4j issue has really showed people that, yes, even open source trusted kind of utility types of software has to be part of that SBOM and also part of the zero trust. And that's what I think has taken a lot of the community by surprise. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so, therefore, you'd expect that these national security agencies, defense agencies are pretty well familiar with all of these security practices in that memo?
0: Yeah, you know, I I certainly think that these are not new terms. and, and, And you'd expect that Many of them are indeed following the, some of these requirements already. I spoke to Terry Halverson, who was DOD chief information officer from 2014 through 2017. He's now a general manager for IBM's federal division. And he said this really just stamps down on, on using these best security practices and make sure that the DOD and IC agencies are staying up to date.
2: It's in place for the great majority of them. But I think as I read this, that, you know, there's a little more inclusiveness in it. And I think they're also making some statements about upgrading. I mean, there, there's sort of good comments in here about making sure you're using the best quantum proof encryption we can get. So
0: while I think many of the national systems were in good shape, I think this is making sure that they're in great shape. That was Terry Halverson, he's general manager for IBM's federal division, former DOD CIO, and as he mentioned in there, one of the one of the asks in this new memo is is that agencies identify any instances of encryption that are not in compliance with NSA approved quantum resistant algorithms. So clearly this directive wants agencies to stay up to date as quantum computing slowly progresses and uh, has the potential to obviously break Uh, common encryption methods that are used today all right and then of course cloud
1: computing not surprisingly was also a big piece of last year's executive order and as we've reported many times and widely that the dod is pursuing cloud full out and lots of initiatives going on what about the cloud how what does that what kind of mention does it get in the latest biden executive
0: order here memorandum i should say it gets several mentions. It gives the heads of def- Defense and intelligence agencies 90 days to come up with a framework for coordinating on cybersecurity instant response response for uh, classified systems that specifically use commercial cloud technologies. It also gives agencies with classified systems just 60 days to update their plans for prioritizing resources toward the adoption and use of cloud technology including the aforementioned zero-trust architecture. So we've seen a lot of defense and intelligence agencies moving to the cloud in recent years, despite the long delays with the JEDI cloud program that was obviously eventually canceled. And so this is really making sure that all of these national security agencies are shoring up their cloud security along with that migration.
1: And Justin, you're also reporting that the memo puts the national security agency, the capital letters NSA in a
0: central role here overseeing all of these measures? That's right. The NSA already sets requirements for classified systems, you know, cybersecurity requirements for those systems. But what this would do is really centralize its role in overseeing uh, you know, cyber incidents that are happening on these networks and, and the cyber vulnerabilities that might crop up that could affect these networks. It gives the NSA the power to issue binding operational directives to, to an agency to take specific actions against cyber threats. That authority is, of course, modeled on DHS's power to issue binding operational directives to federal civilian executive branch agencies. It also directs the NSA and DHS to coordinate on the different directives that they may each send out to agencies. So there, again, is a bridge between kind of the civilian and the military intelligence cybersecurity um, activities. It also would require defense and intelligence agencies to report cyber incidents to the NSA, which, of course, they may have been doing, but it is not necessarily a requirement that was spelled out into uh, a directive like this before. I I talked to Terry Halverson about that as well, and he thinks it's a pretty significant development.
2: You know, if somebody was maybe reluctant to report to NSA or maybe their leadership was reluctant, this pretty much says, no, you got to do it. I think that's the the bigger piece of this. It is coming from the White House saying, hey, we're, we're, we're doing this.
1: Again, Terry Halverson, the head of IBM Federal and formerly the Defense Department CIO. And he had quite a long tenure, too, three years. I think he's the longest one before or since as CIO. And, Justin, is there also the sense of surprise that this is coming from the White House directly through OMB at the agencies? Because typically there's a bifurcation there, and OMB in legal and in theory, has say over what DOD management activities are. But in practice, the White Houses tend to seem to work through the Joint Chiefs and down through the channels within DOD that way, rather than across the river from OMB. So is your sense this was a little bit of a surprise to the defense side of things and to the community that serves it? Well, we
0: haven't heard much reaction at this point yet from those agencies and, and from the community, I certainly don't think it was a total surprise given the executive order that did call out those agencies last year. But as you mentioned, there's been this kind of barrier that, you know, national security uh departments could kind of do their own thing and were kind of in their own world when it comes to cybersecurity. And then the civilian branch agencies were in their own world and industry was in their own world. And of course, as we've seen with the cyber threats that have cropped up, that that kind of segmentation is is mostly artificial these days and and cyber threats can affect a whole range of systems and Different systems use similar technologies. you got to look at who's in the White House, too. Uh, You've got Chris Inglis, a former NSA official who is now National Cyber Director. He's intimately familiar with the national security side of this. There's also Ann Neuberger, who's on the National Security Council. She's also a former NSA official who is leading cybersecurity efforts. And then Jenna Easterly over at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency former NSA official as well, who is now working on the civilian side of things. Those officials are leading national cyber policy. They know that that kind of segmentation is largely artificial these days, and they're clearly working to, to bridge the gaps.
1: Well, we'll see what happens when the first binding operational directive comes over from Fort Meade down to the Pentagon. I think in the Pentagon they call that an order. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you?
3: So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader
2: As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy.
0: Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure.